Welcome to Catherine Flynn's podcast, Intelligent Edge Yoga, conversations for smart, compassionate practice. Each episode will guide and inquire into ethics-based spirituality within a modern paradigm of practice. Whether your practice is yoga, Ayurveda, meditation, or simply living a life full of intention, this is for you. I'd like you to take a moment to consider supporting this podcast through Patreon. Your pledges enable the continuation of the podcast. Patrons will also receive exclusive resources, uh, behind-the-scenes material for instructors, guided yoga and meditation sessions for yogis, and everything in between. This is just the start of something new and exciting. You can be a part of it by going to patreon.com slash yoga and clicking on the large orange button. Thanks. Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, podcasters. I am joined today by a guest from Montreal. I'm joined by Barry Rissman. Barry is widely regarded as one of Canada's most highly skilled yoga educators, teacher trainers, and teacher mentors one of those delightful yoga people who embodies the practice and educates her students with the same attentiveness and evenness she applies in life. Barry teaches with sensitivity, humor, and compassion. So all things we like. Teaching for almost 20 years, Barry teaches alignment-based yoga asana as a path for expansive self-discovery and inner growth. She was the co-founder and co-director of Montreal's Sri Yoga from 2011 to 2016, and from 2003 to 2012, was a senior Anusara yoga teacher and teacher trainer. Barry is also the co-creator and co-director of the World Spine Care Yoga Project, whose mission we will discuss a little further on in the podcast. But Barry and I both share a a real interest in in what it means to be uh, a teacher who is very dedicated to their own studentship, and student-teacher relationships. So we're going to talk about that, too. Welcome to the podcast, Barry. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so pleased. What you're, So you're in Ottawa this weekend, mm-hmm. and what are you in Ottawa for? I'm going to be leading a training in yoga for limited mobility at uh, Pranashanti Studio, and this is actually a fundraiser training for the World Spine Care Yoga Project. Cool. Have you run this training before? Yeah, so the World Spine Care Yoga Project is a protocol of adapted postures, breathing, and mindfulness for populations with limited mobility and um, in pain, people in pain, specifically um, back care patients, although the work that we do um, can be applied to any population uh, with limited mobility, anybody that wants to use yoga, breathing, and mindfulness to manage pain. So um, it's a teacher training protocol that we developed to train teachers in developing countries to actually become teachers of this um, this work to teach their local communities. Um, and so that's what I'll be sharing this weekend. That's very cool. Uh, because, of course, you know, just because someone's in a developed country and has access to studio based yoga, it doesn't mean that they're they're well served by a lot of studio-based yoga. Exactly. There are so many people who, for many different reasons, um, cannot access yoga at a studio. You know, there's many reasons. Maybe they're in pain. Maybe they don't have the resources. Maybe there's not a studio there. Um, 
So I really think that uh, the way yoga is going to expand in the future, one of the primary ways will be um, that teachers learn how to um, bring the practices of yoga outside the studio into these communities that are often that often don't have access. It's something I think it's it's such a wonderful form of continuing education that should uh, should really be. One of the kinds of continuing education that happens soon after a foundational teacher training, because I've always been curious about how a lot of organizations serving underserved uh, and possibly at risk populations seek out new yoga teachers who are perhaps more likely to donate their time. But I think that people who are in greater need, who have more... uh, who require more sensitivity and more skillfulness should be receiving more skillfulness rather than someone who's, uh, who's just figuring it out, right? Who hasn't put together the basic toolkit of a, of a teaching career. Right. I mean, I, I, in some ways, yes. And I also think that uh, a new teacher can, um, easily be very well equipped with tools to teach a general class. I mean, we're working one-on-one with someone to address someone's specific condition. Absolutely. That requires specialized training. That requires a skilled eye. That requires experience. But what we're doing with the, the yoga project is really we're training people who have never even done yoga before how to teach this stuff. So it's really simple, and it, it's aimed at a general you know, it's it's aimed at creating general classes. So um, the tools of yoga, breathing and mindfulness that can be super effective in pain management and helping people gain some more mobility can be very simple, very simple, simply learning how to connect to your breathing, how to teach someone to become aware of their breathing, to notice their breathing, to notice themselves in the moment, the present moment can completely change their relationship with their pain, actually. So these are powerful tools that, um, yes, in, in, in some settings do require specialized training. But often um, I tell new teachers all the time, this is where your opportunity is. This, this is where you're going to be able to really offer, mm. right, is, is outside the studio walls. And I think there are simple ways we can equip even new teachers to, to do that effectively. Cool. Let's. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the the yoga project. But before we do that, speaking of new teachers, uh, when did you get into teaching? How did you get into teaching? And uh, and were you teaching because you know basically what you said now is that it's a simple practice with profound effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my first teacher training in New York City in 1993. And I was very much interested at that time in, like, like many people who entered teacher training shortly after they start practicing, I was interested in deepening my own practice. And I was specifically interested in um, learning more about the vision and the, the wisdom teachings underlying the physical practice. So I came to yoga. I'm a very flexible body type. Yoga was fun. I could do it. Um, and that's kind of what drew me. I had a background in dance and gymnastics. And so when I started doing the postural practices, I, I really liked it. 
Um, and I, I quickly um, recognized that I was a different person after the class. I often think of it as like when we used to have in the old days, like tape counters, <laughs> you know, then the numbers would go up and up and up during my day. And then after the yoga practice, it always felt like the counter was reset <laughs> to zero. And I really started being interested in how that happened and why that happened and how I could I could do that for myself and increase those benefits. So that was really how I entered my first teacher training. So I actually didn't teach um, after that. Um, I started teaching full-time in 1999. And that's in Montreal? Um, that was actually in India. Cool. Um, I did uh, a teacher training um, with the Anusara principals in 98 and started um, teaching classes and retreats at the meditation center where I was living at the time in okay. 99. Yeah. That's very neat. So who were your students? Um, they, were, they were retreat participants. They were people... Also um, visiting the, this um, meditation center. And um, so we offered classes for, for the guests and the, the students there. And did they, did they know uh, who they were going to be getting as teachers? Because I, I, I'm asking because I read, a, I read an account of someone going to Rishikesh a few years ago. And they went with this very uh, clearly defined vision as to what they thought they were going to get. And then they got a uh, white female teacher from North America, and that didn't fit the vision that they went in with. And and the, the impression I got from the article was that thus they did not get an authentic experience. But I think that that can be really problematized. Right, right. Well, right. Um well, actually, uh, just to put it in a little more context, the, the, the classes I was teaching at that time, um, they were not the main focus of the, the main practices at um, this particular place were meditation, chanting, um, selfless service, karma yoga. So the Hatha yoga classes were kind of an addition. And mm -hmm. so, yes, we had a team of Indian and Western teachers that, that gave classes, you know, as part of a, uh, an integrated schedule is like an hour a day. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't the main focus. Okay, cool. How long did you, did you do the chanting practices for? Um, well, in, in, um, in the daily schedule, there were, um, there were different chants. There were 30 minute chants. There were 10 minute chants. There were hour long chants. So there was a whole schedule that you could do with yeah. what you wanted. It's just such a beautiful part of the practice that hasn't, hasn't really got a lot of traction here yet. And and perhaps that's because people don't have sufficient training to facilitate them, but but it sounds lovely to me. Yeah, absolutely. Chanting is a, a very powerful devotional practice that I think um, I'm very happy to see, you know, over the years, it, it has become more and more a part of um, mainstream yoga culture. And, and I agree, it does take um, you know, there, there's some great kirtan leaders and and um, chanting practitioners and teachers out there. So hopefully yeah. it will. Yeah, it's a great devotional practice. So uh, so you began teaching full time in India. So when did you come home? Uh, I left India in 2001. OK, so mm -hmm. after a couple of years. And did you come home with the idea that you were going to teach full time and that was going to be it? Yeah. Um, well, I I um, I left India, and yes, and I began I began teaching full time retreats, classes, 
And then in 2004, moved to Montreal. Yeah. And what's the, tell us a little bit about the Montreal yoga scene. I don't, you know, I don't know if it's a perceived language barrier, because I know some studios operate bilingually, some do just French, some do English, but uh, I know a couple people out of the Montreal scene, um, but I don't know too, too much about how it might differ from from other yoga communities, because they all kind of develop their own flavor, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, one of the distinguishing characteristics, of course, about Montreal in general, and, and the yoga scene as well, is is the French and English. So you have um, it, it's true that there are some studios that do both. It depends. Um, I find it depends a lot on where the studios are located geographically. Um, <clears throat> and my experience is that um, the, the two communities um, can operate pretty separately, mm-hmm. right, because the student base is different. Um, I was very fortunate um, in my studio to have uh my students were completely bilingual, so even though a lot of my students were francophone, I teach in English, um, and they were completely comfortable with that. So there was a really nice crossover in the in the community, um, my my particular community. Mm-hmm. And there is um, next month. There's going to be an expo yoga at the Palais des Congrès, which is also going to be a, a really big bilingual event. So there's a lot of. Um, I think there's some nice efforts taking place at, at bridging that gap and bringing the different groups together. So not just not just groups according to styles or systems, which that may be, yes. you know, how it happens in other places. But, you know, in Montreal, we also have the language. So I think I think there's more and more effort at, at kind of bringing those two communities together. Cool. Because I've chatted with uh, with a couple of bilingual teachers before, and they've said that they they just develop their repertoire in in one language or the other. And, you know, in the same way that we all tend to develop our cues around a particular sequence, uh, they just ultimately become either French yoga teachers or English yoga teachers. Yes, and I've seen that in my teacher trainings as well because I've had a lot of Francophone students in my training and I all, and yet my training, I give my training in English And so I always invite people, you know, when you practice, teach, practice, teach in whatever language you want. And what I understood from people that are fully bilingual, which I'm I'm getting there, not quite there yet. And as as an American, I'm I'm learning. But, you know, the language that you're learning in Mm -hmm. is going to be more the language that you're comfortable teaching in. So even my Francophone students, um, they have to work sometimes to to find the right language in French. For yes. their instructions. So that's kind of an extra step that as a new teacher, probably, you know, they're, they're just getting yeah. their instructions down in, in the language that they're being trained in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've had uh, I've had limited experience in French yoga classes, but but I understand more than I think I do, because I, you know, I remember a teacher being like, relâchez tes jambes. And I was like, OK, I've got that one. Got that one thing. But otherwise, I it was an interesting experience because I found out what it was like to feel confused in a yoga class. Again. Right, right, right. And I once had a trainee in my class who's uh, who's Japanese and she now teaches in in Japanese and English. Uh, she's living in Washington. And, you know, I just I couldn't go to her Japanese class. Like, I mean, I could and really find out what it's like to be confused. But I would just have to pick up on truly the subtle qualities of her teaching because right. none of the verbal would get through. Right. So so you got settled in Montreal. Why did you ultimately decide to open a yoga studio? 
I always um, have seen my role as a yoga teacher as being, um, I see myself as just as much a community leader. Mm. And I think, I think that's, you know, aside from, from teaching uh, a physical practice and, you know, contexted within uh, the tradition of yoga, I think one of the, and all the benefits, all the tremendous um, potential um, benefit from that that students get. I think the other thing that students really get from yoga, uh, going to yoga classes, is community and connection. And I think that's something we're all looking for. And so I always had the vision, even when I didn't have a brick-and-mortar studio, that I was a community leader and I was building community. And I love that role. And I love creating a welcoming, inclusive community. That's always been really, really important to me. Um, it's what I'm trying. I'm doing now online as well. So, so you know, opening the studio was kind of a natural outgrowth of about five or six years of of teaching in different places, and yet, you know, kind of building a mobile community where we would gather, you know, and it w- was growing. And it really felt like it was the next step in fulfilling that vision to actually create a home, create a space Mm -hmm. for that community. Did you enjoy being a studio owner? Yeah. I mean, I loved that aspect of it. You know, it was very interesting um, to navigate the different relationships, um, being a business owner uh, in, in relationship with what are there for your customers or your clients is a very different relationship from the teacher student relationship. So um, having to navigate that, you know, was sometimes a challenge because I I remember I would be outside the studio and we we were in the reception area ourselves and people would come and pay for their classes on the credit card machine. It would say, you know, pass the machine to the clerk. And I would say, Oh yeah, okay. okay. I'm right now I'm the clerk. (laughs) And then we would go into the studio. It's like, okay, now I'm the teacher, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's an interesting thing, right? Because if you're approaching the person coming to you as a student, that's very different than approaching them as a client. Yes. And so I always put myself as I was always a teacher first Mm. and fortunately it worked. (laughs) Um, And the, the studio was successful because I think, um, again, I had done the work from years before of building that trust in those relationships so that the people coming to me, they didn't just see themselves as customers. They weren't yes. they weren't just there to receive a service. Yes, um, they, they were there um, to, to learn. And yes. that's, you know, really what what we all valued. And so and you, that was you saw it more as an as a center for education. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of. A lot of teachers struggle to reconcile the need to pay their bills and uh, and also that uh, the I want to say the shallowness of trends, but but the sometimes the disparity between what students want and what would actually nourish them and cultivate their development. Did you did you struggle to reconcile that? Or do you have any, you know, any sage advice? Uh, yes, and maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, definitely. I struggled with that because, um, as a, again, if you see yourself as a teacher, your role is not necessarily to give the student. The student doesn't know what they need, <laughs> right? That's the job mm. of the teacher. 
Um, and yet I, I have always and yet I, we need to meet people where they're at. Yes. So um, I, I sometimes remember um, one of the, the Indian saints said something. He said, I, I give people what they want. And then eventually until eventually they they want what I have to give. Mm. And that's kind of been I've taken that as as good advice in this way that that I think it's important as teachers to meet people where they're at. Um, and then over time, uh, you know, again, I, I, I see my relationship with the people that come to me as hopefully one that builds over time. And as trust and rapport and just uh, mutual good feeling is built between us, I feel like then there is often a willingness to perhaps go a little bit deeper. I also think that even when we are giving students what they want, what also comes across is who we are as teachers. Mm. So I always think it's, you know, even even in those times where we might have to cater a little bit. Um, and again, I, I don't think it has it necessarily has to be watered down. I think it's more about meeting the student where they're at. Right. Mm. In order, again, until they're ready, <laughs> you know, which that may be a few years down the road. Yes. Um, but I think there's there's a way that um that, that we can do that. And still, if, if we're going deeper in our understanding and our experience, then I feel like there's something there's something wordless, perhaps, that comes across that students get a kind of may, maybe a kind of transmission even where then they start to be a little bit curious. Like when they see the depth of our own practice, they think, oh, this person maybe has something more and they become curious about that. So, yeah. Do you something you you've um, something you've touched on when we talked a little bit about this the other day is whether everyone who comes through your door is your student or not. Right. We don't have great language in the yoga community for sort of levels of studentship, levels of teaching. I, I mean, I don't I don't know who would decide <laughs> what qualifies uh, levels if we were going to give them. But but how do you navigate that? Because, uh, you know, when you teach a drop-in class, every single time you've got neophytes to the practice who heard that organized stretching was good for them. But you've also got people who, uh, who you do have, you know, a, a sacred relationship with that you've been cultivating for years. That's very, very different relationships and, and potentially very different needs. Absolutely. The tradition does actually talk about levels of studentship. It's in the Yoga Sutras, actually, which is great to know that there's there's a ca- there's categories of students. OK, there's the mild one of my teachers used to say it's like it's like degrees of, uh, you know, spiciness and salsa. There's like mild, medium, intense and super intense. Mm. So there's four levels. And, and there's there are other articulations of levels of studentship and levels of readiness in other streams of yoga philosophy as well. So the, the tradition absolutely does talk about the readiness of the student. Um, now, how does that translate to the drop in class? Absolutely. People we're, we're going to be teaching a wide range of people. One piece of advice I got in my teaching that really helped me was 
you don't have to answer the question that hasn't been asked. Mm. Because I think there's a tendency, especially as new teachers, we have a lot of information that we want to convey. We want to be of service. We want to help people. The student has to, you know, in, in order for the not, you know, in order for it to be effective, the student has to ask. <laughs> yeah. And if this and, and that asking can happen in different ways. Right. I mean, I always I think it really does take a level of for, first of all, um, I will engage with the people that I know are want my input. Mm-hmm. So, though, again, those are people who I've developed relationships with over time or who have asked me questions or who have asked for help or who have expressed an interest in wanting more. So, of course, I I will address, I I will, you know, attend to those students that I know want the help and want the support and want the input. Sometimes it's very clear just um, you know, you look around the class at the beginning and you can kind of sense, you, I think you get a sensitivity over time. You kind of sense like this person, you know, if the student goes back into the corner, it's like, OK, they don't. And perfect. That's perfect. I'm, I'm going to let them be where they're at. I'm going to give them their space and they're going to get we, we don't know actually how our mm-hmm. classes will touch people. And I've learned that over the years, like even even the student that is there, you know, not looking at you, really wanting to be left alone. That can be the person actually that comes up after or that tells you the next week or the next month, you know, that class that was so incredible. Um, so uh, we, we don't know what people are getting out of our classes. So I'll, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question, Again, I think it's the, the, the relationships that we build over time kind of guide that, the people that we've built that trust with, that, that trust us. Um, then we're able to, to serve them a little bit more. Um, and then I think we just have to become very sensitive as teachers um, to someone's energy, to someone's, you know, uh, you, know you, get, you get a sense mm-hmm. of how to deal and deal with different people. And, um, you know, when I have a new student, uh, the first few times I often and even, you know, if they're brand new and they they kind of don't know what they're doing, they're a raw beginner. I'll just let them be because people need space um, and they need to feel safe that they can just be exactly how they are mm-hmm. in, in order to um, to feel welcomed. Yes. Yeah. I think depending on the nature of our minds, uh, you know, depending on how spicy we are. We tend to we tend to make up a lot of stories and imprint on people the uh, reflections of our experiences as to why they may be doing what they're doing. So I was chatting with some students the other day and I was I was talking about uh, when people need to leave class before Shavasana is complete and. And I was saying that, you know, I would rather you come to class and if you have to be somewhere and you have to miss Shavasana or the last 15 minutes of class, you know, just the other day, a woman asked permission and I said, you know, when do you have to leave by? And she said, I've got to leave by seven. I said, well, why don't you stop watching the clock? I'll tell you when it's seven o'clock. Now, I trust myself to be watching my clock to get her out on time. But because it was a conversation, it felt very respectful. I felt fine with that. Uh, it's when, 
I say the word Shavasana and someone starts to roll up their mat and we've had no conversation that my fire all of a sudden starts to increase. But I once had this uh, this gentleman, he started to roll up his mat and I said, you know, we're all going to come back into stillness. And and he kept rolling. And then I, I sort of leaned and I looked at him and I said, we're all going to come back into stillness. And he sat down and he he sat and and sat quietly for the duration of Shavasana. And then I made the point to talk to him afterward and said to him, you know, did you not schedule enough time? Do you have somewhere to be? And he said, no, the, that class was really long for me. I have high anxiety and I'm it's hard for me to. Right. And so. You know, I was pleased that we were able to negotiate something that wasn't going to disrupt the people around him, uh, that the sitting was better for him than the Shavasana. Uh, And I'm also glad that we had the chance to have a conversation because otherwise, you know, he might have gone away with this experience of a teacher who, you know, was more interested in their authority than his wellness. And I might have gone away with the experience of feeling like he was disrespectful of the community and their practice. Have, did you have those experiences at the studio or did had you really cultivated a community that sort of, you know, quote unquote, got it? Right. Um, I mean, both those things happen. I think at every studio, right. There's always people. And I, I think that's a great, great learning and something that um, like you, I've learned so many times over the years that we, we, we don't know, where people are at or what people are bringing. And um, I think it is easy, again, mostly we are teachers. We're doing this work because we are the super intense type, right? We love it. Mm-hmm. And it's important to us. And we're willing to do the work, even if Shavasana is hard, yes. <laughs> right? Even if it's hard to be still, we want to do the work because we have that fire. We have that intensity. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a great thing to remember always that, you know, we don't know where the students are at and we don't know what people are bringing with them to the practice. Um, and at the same time, I also love what you said about educating. Right. I think our job is, you know, to just have that conversation and to kind of explore a little bit. And then and then he did end up staying. So, again, I think this comes back to this very important point about what kind of culture are we creating in the studio? Are we creating a culture where anyone can do anything they want or are we creating a culture where we're actually on the one hand welcoming and allowing people to be just where they're at and not pushing them into into uncomfortable places before they're ready? But at the same time, educating this is the benefit of just even even if you can't lay down, even if you can't close your eyes, if you can just sit for five minutes, if that's possible, you know, to create that invitation, that possibility where people actually then when they have the context and the understanding for why we're we're doing what we're doing, why the class ends in Shavasana, then maybe they're willing to go that extra step. So I do think it, it's so important um, in the studio culture to create that culture of educate, you know, again, it comes back to education and communication and um, not simply treating people as customers yes. in the in the in the in the context of a yoga practice. Yeah, I think that's why people end up running special workshops and running teacher trainings and potentially opening their studios because, 
you know, you're going, you're going to suffer as an educator, as a teacher, if you are trying to teach in a particular way that you feel passionately about, and it's, it's just out of step with the culture of the places that you're teaching, right? Because you, you can't, you can cultivate a palette, uh, but you need support in doing that, you know, and you can't, you can't be too against the grain of the culture of the places you're teaching in. Correct. That's right. That's why it gets tricky to navigate all that. It does. So you, so you opened a place, you got to create your own community, you got to create your own culture. And, and was the studio, was it specifically an Anusara studio? Um, yeah, well, we, we left Anusara in 2012 and we became our own, what we called alignment-based heart-centered Hatha yoga, which is always what we were teaching. Um, and kind of, um, you know, did we, 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 we were, we never went down the route of being an eclectic studio. Okay. which I actually think is the better business model. <laughs> but um, I wasn't really interested in managing, you know, 10 or 12 teachers. I had a partner. We were mm-hmm. we were the, the main teachers. We had some. The other teachers there were, by and large, um, students that we had trained to be teachers. So we were all in the same style, which I think is it's a hard um, model to, mm-hmm. to run a studio on. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But you had, but you had big buy-in, right? You well, didn't have to persuade your teachers of no, and, the and, value. No, and you know, honestly, um, what made it work in our case was um, rental, renting out the space. Mm-hmm. You know, for the times like we didn't have classes running all day. Um, again, you know, that's how how you make a neighborhood studio work. Generally, you have yeah. a lot of different styles and a lot of different teachers, um, and you have someone managing all that. Um, we chose not to go down that route, um, and instead found a few really great. Um, um, wellness practitioners and other teachers to to rent our space out. Yeah. So that's how that particular um, endeavor <laughs> that worked for us. So Anusara, to to clarify, how would you define Anusara? Because not everyone listening would know what it is. Right. So the the Sanskrit term Anusara means flowing with grace. Mm. So it's an alignment based system of um, universal principles of alignment. Um, and a non-dual tantric philosophy weaved into the classes. Cool. Did you, and so NSRI was, was fairly well known in, uh, in lots of circles at the time. Did you feel, did that help when you opened the studio? Did people seek you out because of the association? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was for about 10 years, I would say, a uh, very sought after method um, people wanted to be trained and, and study it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you and I, we were talking about uh, previously about evolving your teaching practice. Mm-hmm. And so then Anusara goes through a big evolution uh, because its founding teacher, John Friend, uh, falls from grace. And so that that's what prompted the change. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, I was very fortunate, actually, that I had opened my studio because um, a lot of uh, what I what I saw happen, right, was the a lot of the um, part, big part of the Anasara culture was the workshop culture. Right. Mm-hmm. There were a few kind of big name teachers that 
they didn't teach weekly classes even. They just did workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if that was their own, you know, then that kind of changed dramatically. I was fortunate because I did have a place and I had students who they didn't care what I called my classes. You yes. know, they didn't know who John Friend was yes. by and large. They just liked my teaching and were getting something out of it. So it didn't impact me nearly as much as it impacted others. Um, in that way. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, I also had a background in Iyengar yoga. I had studied Iyengar yoga initially. I went to the Iyengar Institute in Pune during my four years in India. Um, and, and even while I was an Anusara teacher, continued to study with senior Iyengar teachers. So I had that background also. Mm-hmm. Um, so the opportunity for me in leaving Anusara and actually not being affiliated with any big school or system was that I got to really figure out um, what worked for me, what worked for my students, what kind of blend of the technical precision, which I love, and the refinement, which I'll always be a student of and Mm -hmm. will never get tired of exploring, um, combined with the bigger context for asana practice in terms of the wisdom teachings, like what are what are the understandings, what are the approaches that really allow someone to make what they do on the mat into an integrated practice, into uh, to, to get experience the benefit of that in their lives. You know, what are what are the understandings? What are the approaches? Kind of bringing those two things together has been really thrilling for me to kind of offer that um, because it feels much more. It's like it's it's this is really um, what has worked for me and what I love. And so the last five years have really been a process of kind of rediscovering that, you know, free from any requirements, Mm -hmm. (laughs) free from, you know, um, putting energy into kind of being part of a system. I've been able to really hone that approach. And so that's uh, what I've been that's what I've been doing. And as a as a student, it depends on, you know, it depends on your interest and it depends on your comfort. Like some people really they really need to be held in a specific infrastructure, right? And they like that and they're comforted by that. And some people find uh, rules and policy a little a little limiting uh, and sort of it provides an incomplete answer to them. Absolutely. So I personally um, was one of those students that felt very safe and comfortable within, within an organization. <laughs> um, and with having a... A, a name to be part of, not not only, you know, because it was easier, like many yoga teachers, I was not really comfortable or that interested in marketing myself. Um, and what the understanding I've come to about that is that it, um, it definitely did involve fear and um, uh, it took, it took courage to do that. But at the same time, there was also an element I realized um, in what I do is that I, like many teachers, I actually don't ultimately want the teaching to be about me. Mm-hmm. I want to actually empower the student to to experience something within their own awareness and to, and to hold that. So for me, um, st- when students tell me, you know, I don't remember exactly what you said, but I remember how I felt. I remember the experience I had and I've kept that with me. To me, that is the sign of effective teaching. So I've never sought to make the teaching about me. And I think that was one reason why I was comfortable being part of a bigger organization. It was much easier for me to talk about my studio, to talk about Sri Yoga than it was for me to talk about myself. Yeah. Um, so 
that was an opportunity for me to kind of go off on my own and say, it's time. It's time to um, speak about what I do and share what I do and who I am for the people that need that and that are interested in that. And, uh, you know, I also struggled with that question because I really like being a student. But more than just liking being a student um, and wanting to always have the presence of a senior teacher in my life in terms of asana, um, I, I think that a healthy, responsible, uh, stu- a student-teacher relationship with healthy boundaries and integrity is tremendously helpful if you want to go deeper in yoga, if you want the, especially the philosophy part, the concepts mm. that can tend to get misused, misunderstood, you know, to, to have a teacher really help that land in your experience, in your awareness, um, in addition to the, the technical, physical aspect of refining practice, I think a teacher is hugely helpful and, and has been for me having senior teachers um, in my life. Has your experience of, of senior teachers and, and how and how you teach, how you facilitate for your, you know, what we might say are capital S students, people who see us as their capital T teachers. Do you see it as uh, or have you experienced it as prescriptive? You know, here's where you're at. This is what's going on. Here's what you need to do. Or is it is it more uh, exploratory? You know, here are some tools that you could consider applying to further your evolution. It's more exploratory. I think it's better when it's more exploratory. I think it's more effective because it calls forth the responsibility of me as a student Mm. to inquire and to therefore um, find take ownership of my practice. So for me, um, working with senior teachers has always been about um, taking what they offer and then exploring it and filtering it through my own experience, um, working with what I receive in a workshop or a training in my own practice, making it my own, and really seeing what works for me. And then going back to them, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a back and forth. Yes. And saying, I, okay, you taught this. I, I tried this. And now I have a question. And is this how, you know, and, and so, it's, so the exploratory nature of it has always been um, what has been most exciting to me. Yeah. And what are, they, what are they coming to you with? You know, what are the teachers that you mentor, uh, what are they coming to you with? Are they saying, you know, do you have a f- cool new hip trick? Well, the um, current way that I'm working with mentoring teachers is um, by distance mostly Mm -hmm. right now. So I do online. I do an online mentorship program and I work with people one on one on Skype Mm -hmm. so or by phone. So the one on one is often um, they're doing a teacher training or they're doing a workshop or they're leading their first kind of in-depth program And I'm helping them create the curriculum Mm -hmm. and kind of coach them on how to present that, how to best present, you know, particular aspects of um, of those kinds of programs, how to come up with a sequence, you know, so kind of walking them through, you know, making that jump from teaching drop in classes to workshops, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, sometimes requires. It requires a kind of a different mindset. So kind of helping um, teachers um, do that. But um, in, in the online mentoring program, what a lot of people have questions about is sequencing, progressive sequencing. Okay. Um, you know, how to work toward a particular um, apex or goal pose using building up with common actions through the class. Um, and, and I don't know if that's particular to something that they didn't get in their teacher training or they're just interested in that, or it's a particular area of challenge for them. Um, the other thing um, that people um, tend to come to me with is how do I, I want to bring in yoga philosophy more, but it feels forced, it doesn't mm. feel authentic, and so I just shy away from it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's another area. Are they coming to you with any existential crises? Um, <laughs> like personal? Uh, or philosophical. For example, the other day I uh, I messaged my teacher uh, because I said, you know, I'm 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 having these thoughts around uh, why people adhere to this particular lineage, and does it have to do with these or these tenets? And I'm like, I'm really embroiled, and I need some clarification. Oh, I love those kind of questions. Okay. <laughs> I love when people come to me with questions um, that really come out of. Uh, working with their own understanding, <laughs> mm. you know, well, that really come out of reflecting and um, contemplating. So I, we do get into some of that in the in the course discussion. Okay, yeah. So I've always, I think, I've regarded teaching much in the same structure that uh, that university professors might experience their their students. You know, the bulk of your students are going to be you know, undergraduate. So they're going to be uh, new to the education experience. And you would expect that what you're going to offer them is appropriate to beginners. And then you have a smaller pool of people who are going to continue on in their graduate studies. But then you're going to have, you know, a couple of people that you're going to mentor and then you're going to develop those really special relationships with. And we can't really expect every person who comes in the door to be those really special relationships. I feel really blessed to have several of those special relationships. I, I completely agree with you. And I think um, just to get back to your earlier question, I think another another thing that teachers come to me with, because I, um, I place a great emphasis on one's independent practice. I think I, I really think that if you're a teacher, then you need to have time when you're just alone on your mat with your breath, with your body, with your awareness, and practice. And that mm -hmm. is getting harder and harder today because there are so many great options. And I think any kind of, I mean, I teach online, <laughs> yeah. so I, I value online learning. Um, and I think it's a great compliment. And I also think that as teachers, we we do need that time. And, and, and so that is hard for people to find that time, to make that time. So teachers come to me with those issues, and they also come to me with how to handle um, feeling bad about themselves when they can't do that, mm -hmm. when their life doesn't allow the time that they think they need to be practicing or how much they should be practicing. Um, so all that, which is all of the richness for me of what makes teaching such a um, rich form of practice in itself. Yes. Right? That, that our, the yoga is in the teaching and, and in the path of teaching. Yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about World Spine Care. And I'm just going to give the listeners a, a little bit of background. World Spine Care is a multinational, not-for-profit, charitable organization founded in 2008 by Scott Haldeman, who's an MD, PhD, uh, leading figure in the assessment and treatment of spinal conditions. World Spine Care was launched to fill the profound gap in the evidence-based treatment of musculoskeletal and spinal conditions in underserviced areas around the world. The clinic set up by WSC provides scoliosis screening, healthcare worker and doctor training, among other projects we'll discuss. The guiding values of WSC center on sustainability, empowering and educating communities to continue the care provided in spinal clinics in a way that is sensitive to the community's culture and knowledge. I'd like to emphasize evidence-based before Barry and I discuss her involvement in WSC. The director of clinics, Jeff Outerbridge, is an Ottawa-based chiropractor who said that yoga was chosen out of multiple movement modalities considered because there is the best evidence about its effectiveness. So Barry, what's been your involvement in World Spine Care and its, its branch, the Yoga Project? Uh, in 2000, around 2013, 2014, I um, started looking for ways to contribute to um, serving uh, people with yoga, to, teach, to bringing yoga to people outside of the studio context to really kind of share um, in a different way the, the teachings and the practices. So um, I got a, a mutual friend hooked Jeff and I up, and Jeff was interested um, in including, as you say, including yoga as part of the rehabilitation for the patients at World Spine Care Clinics. And I teamed up with Erin Moon, who's a therapeutic yoga teacher in Vancouver. And over the course of two years, we created a protocol in adapted postures, breathing, and mindfulness for World Spine Care. So you, you developed the protocol, and the idea was that this was going to be uh, taught to people around the, the clinics to facilitate yoga classes for people in that community. Right. We created a teacher training program, essentially. Yeah for people in the local communities where there are World Spine Care Clinics to learn how to lead classes in posture, breath, and mindfulness um, for the clinic patients. And your first training, so you went, you went to Botswana in 2016. Yeah, we launched the project in April 2016 at the two, there's two World Spine Care Clinics in Botswana. There soon will be a third one. Um, but we train teachers, we train people to teach the, the yoga classes in both of those clinics and started the programs there. Who were your participants? So one of our great learnings from, we learned so much from the launch, and one of the great learnings um, was that our best teachers for these classes are former clinic patients. Okay. So we trained a group um, in a small village called Shoshong, Botswana, of about 13 um Middle-aged women, the grandmothers, we called Mm -hmm. them for short, um, um, who were all former patients. So they knew pain, they knew back pain, they knew what it was like to not be able to get up and down off the ground comfortably, um, and they they were our first teachers. That's so that mirrors our experience of being being students of yoga and ultimately deciding to become teachers of yoga. Uh, being healed through that kind of care and then wanting to be a facilitator of that care 
uh, out of experience and knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they really could experience firsthand um, the benefits of movement because um, before we created the Yoga Project, World Spine Care um, was teaching what's called the Straighten Up Program, which is a, a World Health organization um, protocol for movement. So they were doing some kind of, it's almost like calisthenics. So they were Mm -hmm. doing some kind of movement. It was helping them. Um, We added the the posture, breath and mindfulness, which is, you know, that's, um, it's the breathing and mindfulness that is really sets yoga apart um, from, for example, physio. Yes. uh, As a, and, and also the fact that yoga is what's called a form of active self-care, meaning it's something that someone does, not just something they receive. That makes it more effective, and it has a psychosocial component, meaning it gets people out and to class and helps them connect, um, and that helps to counteract the feelings of depression or isolation or disempowerment that you know one can feel when, when they're suffering from back pain. So for all those reasons, that's kind of what sets yoga apart from the other um, modalities. Whenever I go in and I'm running a workshop... And it's particularly if it's it's uh, new content or a new take or a new structure, I have to be kind with myself be, and I have to be patient and very present moment mindful because I can already start to see how I'm going to do it differently in the future uh, while I'm facilitating. You know, because you just you feel you're like, oh, this approach is not resonating with this group of people or, uh, you know, I, I should have done something else. So when you got in there, what were some of the things that really worked and what were some of the things that needed to change? Well, this was um, that was a huge part of, you know, we of of our experience there. Um, So what we did was after the training, after each day of our training, we spent several hours um, debriefing. Mm-hmm. about what, what worked well that day, what didn't work well, what we're going to do differently for next time. So huge, huge learning, which I think um, will be valuable. We Eventually, we want to make this protocol available to any organization, that any health development organization. Um, and so these learnings will be hugely valuable. Uh, and we really did our best to go into it without a lot of expectations about how it would work and you know, we did our best um, and we were really ready for, you know, to, to change things on the spot. And mm-hmm. we did we did do that a lot. Um, you know, it was very interesting. One of the things, um, as you know, from from doing yoga teacher training as as well, um, the, one of the most terrifying moments in a Western teacher training is the moment that you have to get up the first time you have to get up and practice teach in front of the group. Right. Yep. <laughs> Panic sets in. Um, and in our group. In Botswana, it was completely different. They had no problem getting up and and teaching. They had no problem touching each other. You know, in fact, okay. <laughs> we, had, we had to say, hold off. You know, <laughs> just, you try to use your words to instruct yeah. rather than just pulling people into the right position. So there was a lot more comfort um, mm-hmm. in some ways. And in some ways there was... Um, we would do, uh, for example, um, mindfulness or breathing exercise. And then usually in, in a Western context, after you do a kind where after you lead um, trainees through a practice, you it's natural to kind of have a debrief. Like, how did you feel about that? What did you experience? How did, you know what what worked for you? And so when we tried to do that kind of um, debrief, 
they really didn't have that language to reflect on their own experience Mm -hmm. and speak about their own experience in that way because theirs is a culture that's very much focused on um, community, not so much on individual experience. So they would say, that breathing exercise was fine. Let's let's go on to the next one. Mm. So did they plow through your material quite quickly? Yeah, they they <laughs> did great. They learned our sequences. They they they're all teaching each other and teaching the patients. And even though they didn't, um, they weren't able to articulate their experience of the breathing and mindfulness. Um, as someone who's taught meditation um, over the years, I could see that the meditation practice was really landing with them. That there was, even though they didn't necessarily have the language to articulate it, that there was that inner life. Uh, you mentioned in uh, in your blog posts uh, about your trip, which have a number of photos of the participants and of you teaching and facilitating, that uh, that when you led mindfulness activities, that they were just in it, and you know anyone who's guided meditation or uh, led pranayama uh, at your average drop-in class, you can tell when people are really not in it. So to have a whole group of beginners be fully present with it, I mean, that must have been, that must have been easy and delightful to be around. It was. It was beautiful, actually, and inspiring to see these women actually just drop inside into a space that's really universal, right? Where we're all connected. Um, and that they took, they took to that practice so naturally, even having not been formally taught that before. It's like they had been doing that mm-hmm. just naturally in their lives. Are you, are you going to go back anytime soon? We are uh, launching another phase of the yoga project this April, Uh, So we have two new teachers that are joining the team of volunteer teachers. We're going to train to to be trainers. um, And we're going to be starting the uh, launching the project in in a new location in Botswana, third location. So the project is uh, is going to expand this spring. Very cool. Any any future plans for you in the yoga project or is that that where you're focused? The launching of the third Mm -hmm. clinic. We're hoping to um, launch the yoga project in Ghana, in the World Spine Care Clinic in Ghana, uh, next, and also work with, there's a World Spine Care Clinic in outside of Mumbai um, that we're also hoping to expand to in the next year or two. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. you're so you're going back to India. Right, right. And work, working with um, Indian physiotherapists. Very and, cool. Yeah. And chiropractors. Uh, and in terms of your your teaching over here, you have a course upcoming that's starting on February 8th. Yes? Right, right. I have um, a, a webinar called Evolving Your Yoga, Principles for an Enlightened Practice. And it's really what I've been talking about, you know, the ideas um, and the approaches that I've been practicing and teaching over the years that really help people to make the asana practice into a path of self-inquiry and into a path of personal growth and really integrate what they do on the mat into their lives. So I'll be presenting that in a webinar and um, starting some online courses around those themes, those principles for an enlightened practice. And that one is for both practitioners and teachers. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, there, there'll be classes, there'll be workshops, there'll be courses online. Cool. I will make sure that everyone uh, gets the links to your site and your information and those courses in the show notes. Great. Thank you. The webinar is free. Anyone can sign up. And if you can't make the, the live event, you'll get the link to the recording. Oh, that's terrific. Right. That's such a wonderful resource. Right. Cool. Good. Well, have, uh, have a terrific weekend. Uh, with your training. And thank you so much for, for making the time. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure as well. Cool. Take care, Barry. Thank you. If you would like to find out a little bit more about Barry and her offerings, you can go to barryrisman.com. And I will link to Barry's website and all her information from the show notes that you can find at www.intelligentedge.yoga. You can also find dates for my 200-hour teacher training this summer, which includes a three-night retreat uh, in August and spans May to August for this upcoming summer if you're interested in furthering your yoga education. Namaste for now, yogis.